Ted Cruz, who today was tweeting that he has never supported a government shutdown, and that is not— Wait, what? <laughs> that was a sadder but wiser Ted Cruz, looking back on his <laughs> right. foolhardy well, green eggs and ham days. Welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Sarah Cliff. I am not Matt Iglesias, who has fled Washington and apparently missed an entire government shutdown. I'm in his wake. I'm here with Ezra Klein and special guest Dara Lind from our Friday show. We are finally in the studio together. Crossover. Um, <laughs> this is, what is this? A crossover episode? It's like a like a Wednesday and a half episode of The Weeds. <laughs> it really feels like it's Wednesday and a half at this point. Yeah, and so, obligingly, Congress gave us immigration things to talk about. It did. So we had to have Dara here to walk us through this. So since the last episodes of The Weeds, since we last spoke with you, we were hurtling towards a shutdown. That shutdown has occurred. And right now, as we tape this, Monday afternoon. It is in the process of being reversed. But there's a lot to work through. We want to talk about what is actually in this shutdown deal, what is not in the shutdown deal, what is to come next after this shutdown deal. Who caved? Who caved? If Did anybody? Caved? Maybe everybody caved. Okay, so let's start with what is in the shutdown deal. And I will start with some of the things that I know about, and then I'm sure there's more to expand. So the main contours of this is we're looking at a three-week bill to or a bill that extends the federal budget for another three weeks. So that brings us to February 8th, I believe, is when this gets us to. It also, I'd say one of the major policy provisions, a six-year extension of the Children's Health Insurance Program, which has been in this budgetary limbo since last fall. Um, it went 114 days without a budget. And it, it there is a six-year extension of the Children's Health Insurance Program that is part of this deal that is ending the That's shutdown. a big deal, right? To get Which that on the three-week extension. Because yeah. uh, as I understood it, there was a debate. A lot of Democrats wanted to, to say the cost of even a temporary small extension is you get CHIP for six years. And Republicans said, no, no, no. If you want CHIP for six years, you just fund the government. Right. And that looks to be a place where Democrats got something significant here. They did. They did. Originally, you know, this started way back when last fall. This was a negotiation about a five-year extension. It, it There were a lot of pay-fors, as we've talked about in the weeds, for weird budgetary reasons. Extending CHIP for six years actually saves the government money at this point. Um, but they, they're putting those savings to what Congress has decided is good use. And one of the other things they're doing in this bill is delaying a suite of Obamacare taxes. So instead of there, there is some, you know, unsolved health care things out here. One of the things that's gotten lost a little bit Very in um, this debate is community health centers have also not been funded since October. They are not getting money in this bill. But what Congress is using the savings on are delays of the medical device tax, the health insurance tax, and the, um, what's the third one? Oh, God. I'm having my Rick Perry moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's Sorry. move on to other stuff on. in the bill. Nobody cares what the okay. third one is. There's one other tax. But so those are the major contours of the bill. I don't know. Do you guys have major policy items? I think the big thing is like, what is not there is anything on immigration. I think the big policy item is the immigration question. Yes. Yeah. So, so Dara, do you want to talk through where sure, we are? Yeah. On that? So that's not. So when Democrats refused to keep funding the government in on Friday night, leading to the shutdown, uh, it was because there was nothing, you know, explicitly saying, and we're going to do something to, you know, help the seven hundred thousand or so immigrants who are 
facing the loss of their protections under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program uh, because the Trump administration kind of set it in motion for that program to end in September, saying that March was the quote-unquote deadline for Congress to act, and this was supposed to be the last must-pass bill before March. So Democrats were saying, if it's not going to happen now, it's never going to happen. They just agreed to a bill that funds the government without doing anything explicitly on DACA. And the what both sides in, of the Senate have agreed is that there is a handshake deal that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has agreed that at some point between now and February 8th, he's going to bring some bill to the floor that addresses the status of DACA recipients. And then the Senate will be able to have like a real live old-timey debate with an open amendment process and all of that so that they can hash out this once and for all. Um, February 8th is before the March 5th deadline. There are also things that we talked about on Friday's Weeds uh, that make the March 5th deadline a little bit less scary for DACA recipients whose work permits are expiring soon after that because they can currently renew those. But it's not clear why what happened on February, on, you know, this weekend won't happen again. So to a certain extent, Congress has just given itself three weeks to solve a problem that it couldn't fix in four months and to look at it another way to fix a problem that it hasn't been able to fix for decades. So I have a couple questions on this. So number one, is this handshake deal, as we understand, does it say anything about the House? Let's say the DACA deal passes the Senate. Has Paul Ryan made a handshake deal to bring it to the floor of the House? Not only has Paul Ryan not made a handshake deal as far as what we know, but uh, a similar, a as part of the Friday night last minute, negotiations to keep the government open. At one point, uh, there did appear to be an agreement for something similar to what ultimately passed, like a three-week CR with an assurance to bring a bill to the to the floor. Paul Ryan said, now we're not going to do that. Uh, and there, th that's when negotiations broke down on the Senate side, because without an assurance to bring anything to the floor of the House, why bother? They appear to have decided now that if a, the Senate passes a bill that changes the dynamic somewhat, that it puts pressure on House Republicans to bring a bill to the floor that doesn't exist right now, I think that that's an interpretive question, right? Like, that's speculating about the dynamics of something that we haven't seen. So, so then the other question I have about this is, I think where Democrats see some advantage here is that imagine a world where you do get some kind of DACA deal in the Senate. And then the House isn't bringing it to a vote. And also now the Republicans don't have the somewhat persuasive to Democrats, although obviously not that persuasive talking point, that you got to vote to fund the government so all these children don't lose their health insurance. So then it looks more clear that Republicans are the ones holding this up because now there's been this deal on the immigration in the Senate and the House isn't moving on it. And also children's health insurance isn't there as a lure on Democrats. So as I understand the Democratic theory here, they think this puts them in a stronger position next time. That is absolutely the theory. I think the counter argument to that is that uh, Jeff Flake exists. You know, Jeff Flake voted against the mm -hmm. continuing resolution last week because Mitch McConnell had promised him in exchange for Flake's vote on tax reform that Mitch McConnell would bring a DACA bill to the floor by the end of January. And it became clear before last week that Mitch McConnell had no intention of bringing a bill to the floor by the end of January unless Donald Trump descended from the heavens and said, here is exactly what I want in a bill. So Jeff Flake said, I don't trust Mitch McConnell. I'm voting against this continuing resolution. It's not clear why Mitch McConnell lied to people who aren't Jeff Flake this time should get people more upset than Mitch McConnell lied, you know, to people who are Jeff Flake. I think it would be, this is my interpretation of this. I think it would be really 
bad for Republicans if they ended up in a position where Mitch McConnell cut this deal and then on February 8th had not brought an immigration bill to the floor. I think that's a world where the next shutdown in the way it's reported on and talked about it is just continuously talked about in terms of McConnell breaching the agreement. Right. So that I think nobody cared about Jeff Flake getting, uh, I mean, it was bad and I, I care about it personally, <laughs> but the, the shutdown is what would force people to talk a lot about it. And I mean, in this case, in some ways, like a shutdown did force people to talk a lot about it. Flake was an important, I think, part of the shutdown narrative, or at least like an important sub part of the sh- mm-hmm. of the shutdown narrative. And this would get really bad for Republicans if they just like welched on the deal. Right. I think in the last case, I also like I, I do see some of the irony of like this promise being made a second time in like a month or so. But I think it is a promise not to just one individual senator, but like to a much larger group of people. And I think with the shutdown politics, that gives it more valence. One thing I wanted to have you talk through, Dara, is like, what are the, what is the scope of this policy debate that like needs to be solved in the next three weeks that has not been solved in the past four months? Like, what are the contours of what we are looking at right Right. now? This is the key question for me, because I think that it's actually, it's, there are many ways for a bill to fail to get to Donald Trump's desk and get signed that don't involve Mitch McConnell explicitly going back on his word, right? The fundamental problem here is that Democrats have, since September 5th, been entirely united that what they want is a path to citizenship for DACA recipients and beyond that, people who are, you know, quote unquote, in a similar situation, people who would have qualified for DACA, who also grew up in the U.S. but didn't apply for whatever reason or who are too young because people who aren't 15 couldn't have applied for the program. So, you know, you have 10-year-olds who are in a similar situation. Um, Republicans have ostensibly said we want something for the DACA kids. Um, But they haven't, they've also said, well, we need something in exchange for doing this thing we supposedly want. Uh, Which means both that, A, Republicans haven't agreed on what they want in exchange. Uh, They're, you know, Donald Trump says he wants a border wall. Donald Trump has also said he wants some fixes, some changes to legal immigration. Uh, Some immigration hawks in Congress appear to want much more of a crackdown on immigration unauthorized immigrants within the United States. There is basically an entire menu of, you know, a conservative, comprehensive enforcement proposal that was the product of the House's quote-unquote negotiations among House Republicans on this. It was much, much broader than just a wall or just the things Trump was asking about and the kind of thing that under normal circumstances you'd be debating for several months and would be like the major legislative proposal of a Congress, uh, just kind of thrown out as a, this is what we should pass in two weeks. So they, that's like an argument that Republicans have not necessarily had with each other, but need to have with each other before they can actually make any progress at the negotiating table. Because every time you ask a Republican, well, what are you de- your demands? They tend to either say everything or they say, well, that's for somebody else to figure out. The other part of this is that because they've been saying we all agree, we need something for, for people who have DACA, they aren't acknowledging that there are substantial differences between what Democrats are actually asking for and the most conservative proposal that you could theoretically pass. Like, On DACA specifically. Right, yeah. You could, you... Can you walk through, yeah, like, those two yeah. polls? Like, so, so you know, as I said, Democrats, they, they want something, they want legalization that includes some access directly to citizenship. They don't just want it for the 700,000 people who, like, had DACA as of September 5th. They want it for, you know, some of the bipartisan proposals are estimated about 2 million people would get legalized under the program. Uh you could see a world in which Republicans say, 
this, the reason we're having this debate is because of this specific program that is ending at this specific time. We are trying to prevent people who currently have work permits from getting deported. Therefore, we're not talking about citizenship. We're just talking about giving them work permits through Congress rather than through this executive branch program that conservatives think is unconstitutional. And we're not talking about two million people. We're just talking about people who currently have those work permits because otherwise it's not much of a disruption to people's lives to lose work permits that they already lost or that they never those had. Those two million people, yes. just when you, who are they? Like when, when you go <laughs> so, from the 700,000 roughly to the two million, what is the rule under which that gets expanded up? So there are a lot of people who would have qualified. Like, the estimates of who was going to get DACA were a lot higher than the estimates of, of people who actually got DACA because a lot of people, you know, may not necessarily have known about the program, may not have trusted the government to give them, you know, to have their personal information and the information of members of their family because even if you're applying for protection for deportation from yourself, that that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, your parents still are vulnerable to deportation and they had lots of reasons not to trust the Obama administration, much less the Trump administration with that. They may not have been able to afford the $495 in application fee. They may have not been able to, like, afford a renewal after two years. There are lots of you know, reasons for that kind of lack of 100% pickup among people eligible for the program. There are also people who who weren't initially eligible for it, but like got their GEDs at some point or who, you know, could get their GEDs if there were an actual legalization bill on the table, but who didn't feel motivated to do that just for a work permit. And then, as I mentioned, you have the people who were you know, too young to apply for DACA per se. But if you're legalizing people under the rubric that kid, people who grew up in the United States should have the chance to be legal residents of the United States, you want to extend that to people who are younger than, you know, what who could have applied for DACA as well. Got it. That, that, that makes sense. Okay, so now you're in this place where you, you have this set of issues. There is the Graham-Durbin bill, which has the expansive version of DACA in it and less aggressive interior enforcement. There's no interior enforcement. The Graham-Durbin bill does have some stuff that that they're spinning as limitations on legal immigration, um, including changing the diversity visa lottery. But on net, they're basically keeping overall legal immigration levels constant. They're just shifting who those go to. So, like, the, there's actually there's a, a House version that's even narrower that is just border and legalization for, you know, and, and a DREAM Act version. The Durbin-Graham version is tailored to what Donald Trump said he wanted circa, you know, December 1st. And then on the other side, there's the House Goodlot Bill. Yes. Which is unbelievably restrictive, sort of beyond even where mm-hmm. probably most Republicans or a lot of Republicans are comfortable. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, this is what I w- was kind of describing earlier as the sort of bill that you would expect to be the major legislation of a Congress. There is so much in there. There is an agricultural jobs program that is, you know, that a lot of growers don't necessarily like because they would rather keep the workers they currently have than try to find new workers every year. There's increased mandatory minimum penalties for illegal reentry. There is, it is an absolute Christmas tree. And it's not clear whether Bob Goodlatte has a few things in that bill that he really, really wants or whether Bob Goodlatte thinks, well, if you're going to do anything to legalize anybody, this whole slate of 400 pages of bill language has to come with it. And what's the good thought language around DACA? Like, what's that doing for DACA that, recipients? So the Goodlatte bill would not, would allow DACA recipients, current DACA recipients, to get a renewable three-year work permit uh, and legal status. 
that would not give them the ability to apply for a green card from there. So they would have to be sponsored by employers for a green card down the line. That forces them through a funnel that a lot of people are already trying to get through. Um, It's not, it would be increasing the number of green cards available to employers, but not by a ton. It certainly means that there would be a backlog at best among DACA recipients. And it means that probably most of them would end up in something less than full permanent resident status for most of their lives. And the them here, that's, so that's just the 700,000. It's it's probably fewer than the 700,000 because for one thing, some people have already lost DACA and therefore wouldn't be eligible because it's whoever has, has a work permit as of the day of enactment that is current. There are also very strict limitations on staying in status. Um, So, for example, someone who makes less than 125% of the federal poverty line for 90 days or more or can't show that they've made more than that, uh, that would be a violation of the terms of their status. So they would lose their status. And fun fact, this bill also makes it a crime to have no immigration status in the U.S. So they'd immediately become, they'd be guilty of a federal misdemeanor, which would be a problem for them in the future. So I want to maybe zoom out here a little bit to now the process of this, mm-hmm. because I think there are a bunch of questions contained in this that that are worth pulling out explicitly. So, so as I've been marking this down and listening to you, Dara, uh, I think we've got a couple. So there's a question, because none of these are actually resolved, as far as I can tell. So first is a question of what bill or bills McConnell allows to the floor, right? So nobody, <laughs> totally knows, nobody knows that. Is it an existing bill or a bill that is yet to come? Or is nobody it multiple, knows. right? Because yeah. they could bring multiple bills to the floor, right. and multiple bills could potentially pass. Absolutely. So that's one. That, that was so, actually Jeff Flake's understanding of what the deal was going to be. So then there's what actually passes the Senate, if anything. Then there's what gets brought to the floor of the House Mm -hmm. and what passes the House, if anything. Then there's what Trump signs, if anything, because one thing that's been happening here is that they're clearly, if Donald Trump had come out and said, I love the Durbin-Graham bill, we wouldn't be here right now, probably. Um, We could have had a whole different outcome. So Trump is an an actor in this, and he's being, as far as people can tell, egged on by by not just Stephen Miller, but John Kelly. Um, And then also, and I just want to note this because I think it's important, we don't know yet importantly what the implicit democratic position is. They have not at all been clear yet. Is their position that they will keep the government open so long as they get a vote on a DACA bill? Or is their position they will keep the government open so long as a DACA bill passes? Yes. And those are really different positions too. Yes. Yes. Uh, And I think the other problem is that your questions do not actually proceed in sequence. Like, it's well, if you want to get even harder. About it. <laughs> no, 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 no. They like they feed back into it. It's like kidding, it's like a I'm water kidding. cycle diagram. Um, <laughs> the, they it's going to be harder to bring a bill to the floor of the Senate if Senate Republicans are worried that they're about to be left vulnerable because the House is never going to take this bill up and they're going to look like sellouts. It's harder to get a bill to the floor of the House if Donald Trump hasn't come out and said. I'm a deal maker and here's the tough deal that I made because that creates cover for a lot of House Republicans who maybe don't have strong opinions on immigration, but certainly don't want the president calling them, you know, weaklings who want crime in MS-13. So it's without certainty down the line, it's very hard to get action earlier in the process, which is exactly why we've been in this weird limbo so far of everybody saying they want the same thing and very few people feeling the urgency to do it. So let's take a break. And I'd like to hear Sarah on who caved. Out with the old and in with the new. That is the mantra right around this time of year. So we think it is time to upgrade your coffee routine with Blue Bottle Coffee. 
Blue Bottle Coffee provides the most delicious coffee in the world right to your door. They are really focused on freshness. Your Blue Bottle Coffee is shipped to your home within 48 hours of placing your order, so you know the beans are really fresh. One sip of this coffee will make you realize you have been unfortunately drinking subpar coffee your entire life. After trying it myself, I can honestly say there is coffee and then there is Blue Bottle Coffee. The difference is that they have an insane dedication to coffee. They search the planet far and wide to secure exclusive relationships with independent growers all over the world to source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee there is. And nobody takes freshness as seriously as Blue Bottle. If you are worried about flavor, you don't have to be. You don't have to be a coffee expert or snob. You can just take Blue Bottle's coffee match quiz to find out the perfect coffee for you. And they have a bunch of blends, espresso, single origin. They really do have something for everyone. So right now, you want to head to bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds. bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds. Hey, so you're listening to The Weeds, which is a very nerdy, deep dive thing about policy. But I bet if you're a nerd about policy, you're also a nerd in other contexts. So I want to introduce you to The Vergecast, the nerdiest podcast on the Vox Media Network. I'm Dieter Bone. I co-host it with Neil Patel and Paul Miller. And we go uh, super deep on uh, nerdy tech topics and have some fun. So please check it out. It's uh, over at The Verge. Okay, so... There has been this debate, I think, happening among liberal activists on Twitter that we've all been watching about this idea of caving. And I think the general theory is that there was a moment that I saw bubbling up last week where it was a lot of kind of liberal activists were saying Democrats need to do two things. They need to get chip funded and they need to get something on DACA in this deal. And anything less just should not be supported by the party. And I think this reminded me, and we'll get a little bit into this later, of some of the more hardline tactics we saw from Republicans around the last shutdown, where that is one that is um, very vivid in my mind because it was over Obamacare funding and was basically led by Ted Cruz, who I will say today was tweeting that he has never supported a government shutdown, and that is not— Wait, what? <laughs> he had some tweet about it's never a good idea to shut down the government. Anyways. Oh, maybe if he you, was— That was a sadder but wiser Ted Cruz, looking <laughs> back on his foolhardy right. green eggs and ham days. You know, back in you know back in the early days of 2013, Ted Cruz led this shutdown that lasted for 16 days over Obamacare's funding, basically arguing if the government is going to fund Obamacare— then we are not going to vote for that budget. And it lasted for 16 days. It became clear Obama was not going to defund his signature legislative achievement. It arguably gave Democrats cover from the fact their terrible healthcare.gov website didn't work. Anyways, um, it, so this reminded me a little bit of what we saw from Republicans. And it's kind of led to this debate that's pretty, I think is interesting to all three of us, about did the Democrats cave? And I, I will make the, I don't know that I believe it, but I'll make the argument for they cave, which I think is pretty simple. I think there were a lot of activists out there who wanted to see DACA addressed in this and were comfortable with the idea of Democrats acting more like Republicans and saying, okay, you know, we're going to shut the government down until we get the thing that we want. And I think that in that sense, it looks like a cave and that we have a deal. CHIP is funded, but there is not any sort of, there is not a deal yet on DACA. But I think Ezra has the anti-cave case. Well, I don't, 
<laughs> I don't know that I would call my case the anti-cave case. I just think this is weird. I think it's a weird conversation. I think it's like a punditry problem that every deal has to be judged within like six seconds of it being reached. And like, if you shake my magic eight ball, like the answer is like, ask again later. And the answer is ask again later because- That's not a hot take, I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm breaking the rules. But it is an open question to me what happens over the next three weeks. And if what happens in the next three weeks is- a bill comes to Senate floor and it's some variant of Durbin Graham and that bill passes the Senate and then the pressure on the House pushes that bill through the House. And then Donald Trump, who's no longer dug in over a shutdown and wants to have a nice state of the union or whatever it might be, just says, fine, screw it, I'm signing this, then I think this looks pretty good for Democrats. I think the downside of a shutdown for them is that as both sides are messaging a shutdown, they dig in deeper in ways that are very, very hard to dig out from, that the the deal to stop a shutdown looks much more like caving, right? You have this immediate caving narrative like that you're already uh, applying to the Democrats. And so you I think you've seen this in the rhetoric. Something that I've been tracking a bit is that Mitch McConnell has been talking about the shutdown is entirely about illegal immigration. And as they have begun to recast a Dreamer deal as an illegal immigration deal, that is not a good look for a Dreamer deal. It doesn't make it likelier, I think, that, that one ultimately passes. Now, on the other hand, you can imagine a world where we're sitting here three weeks from now and Mitch McConnell brought a bill to the floor and it failed, or maybe it passed and it failed in the House, or maybe it passed and it never got a vote in the House, or maybe it passed the House and the Senate and Donald Trump vetoed it, and Democrats say, uh, well, I guess we tried. And then that's a whole different world, right? If they don't get a dreamer deal, but they keep the government open and they don't use their leverage in a couple weeks to, to shut it back down, then I think that, yeah, then they just kind of caved on this. And then there's this whole other question of, is this kind of shutdown politics just a good idea? Which I think is more open still than, than, than other people seem to. Democrats had a lot of good arguments in the past couple of years against Republicans using the continued funding of the federal government as leverage to, to win policy concession. The difference for Democrats and Republicans is Democrats are trying to get Republicans to accept a compromise that they said they want, whereas Republicans were trying to get Democrats to accept things Democrats did not want, like defunding Obamacare. But even with that sort of as a premise, the kind of endlessly spiraling escalation of shutdown politics and others, uh, I, I think there's reason to be wary of it. And I think there's reason to to also question the idea that it is a good way for parties to get what they want. Because traditionally, the folks who shut the government down, the, the minority parties, or, or even in some cases majority parties, who trigger government shutdowns, they rarely get their policy suite enacted. And that's because, uh, or at least partly because, it raises the stakes of the issue so much that it becomes a very, very big public prestige loss for the other side to, to fully give on it. So I just, I don't know if anybody's caving, but I don't think it's a crazy thing to get to pocket the six years on chip, take another three weeks, try to get a deal, and then see where you are. I think that I feel less strongly about who ultimately caved than I do that we are going to have information about the effects of this much sooner than three weeks from now, because the other way to understand shutdown politics is a way in which a party in Congress blows through congressional norms in order to please something its base thinks is of such importance that it's worth blowing through congressional norms. And that's a dynamic that has been kind of growing in tension between Democrats and their base since Trump was inaugurated, because Democrats on one hand are saying that the president, is, the, the man currently in the Oval Office is unfit to serve, that he is 
you know, a disaster for America, that he is incredibly inept and also incredibly cruel. And yet they don't appear always to be willing to say, and therefore that we will pull out all the stops in opposition to him. And I think that that's arguably symbolic, but still, you know, it's a line that Democrats are often wary of crossing, that their base has been looking for them to cross, to demonstrate, no, we actually care about the people who we say are being harmed by Trump's policies. Uh, One one dreamer activist who I was on, uh, I was doing a radio hit with a couple of weeks ago, said they, you know, bring us up to stand next to them at press conferences, but they're not standing with us when, you know, when the rubber hits the road. And that sentiment, I think, is very... It taps into a broader progressive idea that Republicans actually respect their base more than Democrats do, that Republicans are properly, you know, that there's something noble in the way that Republicans bow to conservative And from, like, that viewpoint, I totally see how this, like, the timing of all this really felt like a cave. Like, it happened over the weekend. The government was, like, shut down during the days when no one was really paying attention. And then Monday morning rolls around, and it's, like, an actual shutdown, and the federal agencies are preparing to do their furloughs and like things are actually happening. And then it's like, whoa, 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 let's hold on for three weeks. And so I I do, I think like it seems like the, it is not, the information is not yet there to make this judgment, but I understand the worry on the part of activists that like they're not willing to cross that line. And once we got into like actual workday shutdown, there was a very quick pullback. And, you know, what are those three weeks going to going to do like why step back from that line and i think the other thing is that you know that it's it's possible that demoralizing the base right now does make it harder to get a deal three weeks from now right especially given that the nature of the current mobilization is not explicitly pro-democrat it's very much anti-trump it is among people who see the democratic party with a certain amount of wariness you know the, the the democratic party hasn't really owned the like hasn't really strengthened its ties with the resistance yet and so a something where they people were pushing very, very hard on a very specific thing and Democrats were willing to go along with them and then sold them out is, it, you know, it, it's something that they're probably going to be able to recover from by November, but it's hard to see people saying, and therefore I'm going to light up the phones to get Republicans to sign this bill three weeks from now. I think this conversation, I came into this with a pretty like neutral wait and see attitude. <laughs> I think this position is pushing me pretty far to the other side. This conversation is pushing me pretty far to the other side. This is exactly the arguments that Republicans used in the Obama yeah. era, every single one of them. And I'm not saying maybe they're all right, but I thought that was when People talked about, when all of us talked about Republicans over these years, we didn't think it was good they were driven by their base in that way, right? We didn't think it was good that the base got them to shut down the government in 2013 or hold the debt ceiling hostage in 2011. I didn't think it was good anyway. And it's not, and this was one of the arguments, right? And I I actually have always had a lot of sympathy for it. You were saying this just a couple minutes ago. If this is really so important to you, if this policy is so important to you, if this constituency is so important to you, if it's also important to you, then why aren't you pulling out all the stops? And so I remember this on Obamacare, right? Republicans, the argument they made, the argument Ted Cruz made was, we have told you for years, Obamacare is like the end of the world. It's the worst possible thing that could happen in this country. We have run and won elections that we are going to oppose Obamacare. So it is only fair. Like it is, we have we would be liars if we didn't now come into government immediately and shut down the government or breach the debt ceiling or like fire to the Capitol building, whatever it might be. And the argument people made in response to that was that 
it is important for the long run of politics or politics to be an infinite game and not a finite game for there to be norms and rules and for things to take place for the most part within boundaries within you know the 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 give and take of the legislative process and not and not to use sort of government funding and shutdowns and debt ceilings and I mean there are other things you could you could use Senate rules and stop the entire place right you could do the thing where you have to read every bill and you can make every meeting take longer I mean there's a lot you can do to destroy the functioning of American government but the logic of that escalation takes you into a pretty bad place. And now I don't want to be by the same token because this is where this puts you, right? Once the norms begin being breached, you don't want to be the person saying, yeah, but it's the people I care about who you shouldn't stand up for, right? I I care about dreamers, right? Like I don't like this. And, you know, I, and it's funny, I was reading Mike Tomaski's column. I actually wrote about this on the site today. I was reading Mike Tomaski's column about the ways in which the, the Democratic Party is beginning to mirror the Republican Party tactically. And it's this whole column of him being concerned about this. And then sort of at the end, he says, Obviously, it's a good thing they're shutting down now because Republicans keep playing this way. And if Republicans are going to play this way, Democrats have to, too. But I just want to note, like, that's the logic of how you destroy a system. And I think that one reason I'm interested in this deal is that it would be good if there's a way to resolve this without it primarily being leverage from shutdowns, one. I think, two, it's not clear the leverage from shutdowns will resolve it. It's just not been how things work in the past. But three— I, I hear this and I both hear its logic, but I really want to say, like, this is the logic of the Republican congressional minority and majority between 2009 and 2000 and whatever. Um, and it was bad. Like, it was really bad for the country. And so I'm just worried to see it now become everybody's logic. But I, think I mean, one I don't of think the key differences that you pointed out earlier is we were talking well, like with defunding Obamacare. Like, that was a non-starter for Obama's legacy I think we're we're talking about you know a deal that in some level Republicans have talked about supporting. So I think that's a difference. I think the other like question I'd have back for you is like so so what do Democrats like like what do you do? How do you like get this back to a healthier place? If it's not, I I, I agree that it is worrisome to see like the shutdown become the way that we make policy in the United States. But I also I don't know that I see like a better path forward. Well, that's why. I it's funny because this conversation is making me more of a fan of this deal. That's why I think that um one thing you want to do is always be willing to negotiate. I do think mm-hmm. that there are different situations you can imagine here. One is Republicans saying, I'm sorry, there's no dreamer deal. We're not looking into this. We're not bringing something to the floor or if we are bringing it, it it's only the good lot bill. And like then your only question is do you shut down or not? But to the extent that there's an opening for negotiation, I don't see why you don't take it for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or whatever it is and while preserving your uh, leverage down the road. I mean, I, I do see the argument why Democrats shouldn't uh, do a long-term CR uh, without having some deal. Although even that, by the way, that argument still plays in the logic of endless shutdowns and using this kind of thing as leverage. The other thing I'll just say, and, and again, this is an argument Democrats made back in the, back in the Obama years. And nobody likes it, right? Nobody likes this argument when the logic of it is against the positions you care about. But in politics, the way you get your policies is you win elections. And Democrats keep saying Republicans support this stuff, but the answer is they don't. Like, they, Donald Trump says he supports a lot of things, but we don't have a health care bill from him that's going to insure every American with lower deductibles and the government's going to pay for it. And so, I don't know. I mean, sometimes the answer is, you have to win elections, right? The Republicans control the House and the Senate and the White House. And 
I don't know. There might not be a good answer for Democrats here. Like the answer is to win in 2018. So, I mean, as I think that what happened in 2014 was that the party that had just made itself look so bad by shutting down the government over nothing for 16 days won the elections, right? I think mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily the case that you can draw a direct line from shutdown politics to, you know, what happens the next time around. And there's an argument that having a demobilized base in a midterm election where base turnout is a big deal is a problem. So, you know, you I don't I think that argument cuts both ways. But more broadly, I think that you're assuming that it sounds like you're assuming that in 2013, progressives agreed with you about the importance of norms and now they don't. And I don't think that that's true. I think that there are a lot of I think there are a lot of people who are judging the rightness of actions by their consequences, not by the procedures by which they happen, who like didn't like the 2013 shutdown because it was about giving people health care and who liked the 2018 shutdown because it was about legalizing dreamers. Like there are a lot of progressives who are skeptical of things like that they perceive as tone policing. You know, the idea that you need to be civil with people who, you know, don't necessarily want (laughs) people whose politics amount to you not being happy in this framework, right? That, you know, if someone wants to deny your identity, you shouldn't try to be, you know, try to play by their rules. And I think who are broadly skeptical that the procedures that have been in place are anything but a massive civility play to try to mask the raw power of what's going on. And so I think a return to a raw power politics in which it's about, you know, let's be honest about what you support and don't support, and let's not use these prettified, you know, arcane Senate rules and techniques to, you know, as as ways to restrain ourselves, but let's use them as weapons so that we can get what we want. Like, that's consistent. It is the kind of way that systems die. But I don't think that it's like that everyone everyone who's now saying the Democrats shouldn't have caved on the shutdown was particularly concerned in 2013 about the erosion of norms. They were concerned about Republicans holding up the government over health care. I, I think a lot of them were, but I'm also not making for the record and don't think it would be relevant to make an argument versus hypocrisy here. My point is not that people have changed their positions. I, I mean, Chuck Schumer used a shutdown over immigration in 2013 as an example of the kind of thing it would be ridiculous to shut the government down <laughs> over. So people definitely changed change positions. My point is that the arguments were good ones, right? Irrespective of why people were making them or whether they were opportunistic, I am concerned about a system where the logic is towards all-out, flat-out war on everything, no matter whether you have the power to do it, you have the power to pass your policy eventually. And to your point about the consequences, I really agree with you, right? I mean, at least that's an important piece of it here. And again, that's why I think I'm friendlier to this deal than other people are, or at least why I'm saying, well, let's see what the consequences are of it. If in the end, Democrats don't get what they want, then I'll sort of, if in the end there's no deal on dreamers, I would look at sort of what the behavior of Republicans was around that, right? And and make a judgment on whether I thought a, another shutdown was, was reasonable. But a world where politics goes to a place where what you're continuously doing is in a way that is not even obviously strategic to me, at least some of the time, certainly with Republicans, it often wasn't strategic. You're just showing each time that your commitment to your principles is so pure that you will brook no, um, that, that you will go all the way tactically. That, again, in the long run, I think a lot of people get hurt by that. And even if you're just talking about like people you care about and, and, and people you're worried about, 
things that increase the likelihood, say, of a global financial crisis caused by breaching the debt ceiling over one of these, that's bad. The people who get hurt are not politicians. The people who get hurt are like poor people who need functioning credit markets um, and are not the, do not have the easiest time accessing them. So I just want to note that it, it, this is not this is not a question of like what rhetoric people are using. Continuous shutdowns, people who rely on government services get hurt. Debt ceiling breaches, like people who are marginal in the economy get hurt. Like, I mean, there are, are real lives in the balance here. So I, so I wouldn't want to see this just become framed as civility politics. I think one thing that's playing into this is that the consequences of shutting down the government don't feel especially severe for political parties. So 538 had a nice piece on this looking at the aftermath, the 1993 shutdown, the 2013 shutdown. And the general takeaway is that voters kind of forget, especially in like the media cycle right now, it is very hard for me to imagine people thinking, oh man, like that government shut down, like that's going to really change my vote 10 months from now. You know, we it's a kind of similar time frame to where we were with the 2013 shutdown, which was in October of 2013 with midterms coming up, November 2014. So I don't know that the consequences of shutdown feel super severe to the people causing the shutdown. I think that's one reason it doesn't, it doesn't feel like all-out war to them. Because while it is true, there are certainly people who get hurt, a lot of things in the government keep running. Like, you know, the VA hospitals stay open, Medicare and Medicaid are still running. A lot of the major functions of the American government continue to run in the face of a shutdown. I think it'd be different, like Medicare literally stopped paying doctors. That'd be a very, very different situation. It would seem much more severe to shut down the government. And I don't know. I think Democrats saw Republicans like go through this in 2013. They did it for two weeks. They didn't actually get anything they want. So I agree it is like not a good way. I never understood the end game of the 2013 shutdown. Like Obama was finally going to throw up his hands and say, well, I guess we're going to defund Obamacare because this is going on long enough. Like it seemed pretty clear at the start that well, wasn't going places. Well, can I ask you then, because I think yeah. you guys are friendlier to this as we've continued this conversation. No, I'm just, I'm just ventriloquizing, what, man. I like what is the end have no game idea. Of, what is the end game here, right? Because that's mm-hmm. actually the question that I have not heard really well answered. What is it about an extended shutdown that increases pressure and makes a mm-hmm. deal likelier? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Because I, I think, I, I think oh, the ahead. best case, the, the best argument that I heard for it, and again, I am just like, I am ventriloquizing arguments that have been made to me. I am, I actually totally. retweets have are not no endorsements. idea. <laughs> retweets are not endorsements. Um, but the argument that I have heard is that to the extent that Republicans are trying to put off voting on the bipartisan bills that exist by saying, well, we could negotiate another deal that's better for us. This deal just isn't it. And aren't actually going and negotiating that deal. A sustained shutdown, you want to end quickly. You want to end it by bringing a bill to the floor that you know is going to pass quickly. And that bill is Graham Durbin or something like it. And therefore, in like reaching for whatever is going to get them out of this, they do the thing policy-wise that is the best thing. I don't know that that's a persuasive argument, but that is the argument. It's I don't I don't know. So like the more I talk through this. I don't know why this is like the lesson you would learn from Republicans is like, it's a good thing for your politics to shut down the government and you will get what you want. It seems like you get a shutdown for a few weeks at most. And at some point you back off of what you were working on. The electoral consequences, you know, don't seem to be that severe, but at the end of the day, I can't think of, and maybe someone who's covered more shutdowns than I have can remember, it's hard for me to think of a situation where a shutdown of the government like led to the policy outcomes that the shutdowners were trying to achieve. 
Yeah, no, the, I mean, the only thing that I wonder about here is is really it's about it also comes down to Trump's psychology because he's a bit of a unique player in all this. And, and all previous shutdowns have happened under presidents who are not Donald Trump, which makes him very different. And this is a guy who is comfortable in the 30s in the polls, who does not. He was actually somebody uh, was reporting that he's been telling friends on the phone that he thinks his real approval numbers are in the 50s. So he's got very, very skewed information sources coming into him, um, is obsessed with the idea of whether he is seen as winning or losing in things, right? Obsessed. Has a very, very, very strong tendency when you attack him to double down on whatever crazy thing he just said. Um, Tends to like dig himself into positions that maybe he only like gestured at off the cuff because people then attack him. And well, like if you're attacking him, like he is going to like come back at you 10 times harder. And so I have just not heard a super persuasive account of his psychology where digging him in on a shutdown where every morning he's tweeting about illegal immigration and Democrats shutting down the government, how terrible it is, leads to a deal on something that he has already rejected. Um, Whereas I, I do wonder a little bit more if you could sort of the government's running, people are not paying such close attention if a deal in that context isn't a bit more likely because it isn't quite as much of a loss. It's just an an immigration deal over here on the side. Shutdowns raise the stakes. Um, So what you need to assume is that they're either causing so much pain that they cause one side or another to change their position, or the other, one side or the other has so much like of a sense of responsibility that they they change their position out of um, respect for that. Uh, that should this that does not to me describe Donald Trump. It doesn't mean that I'm sure it couldn't happen, right? I I don't know how a shutdown would go, and I could even imagine a world where Donald Trump does stuff like Gingrich did in the '90s and just says such wild stuff that the public really turns against him and congressional Republicans begin to fold. But it's a it's a game of probabilities, and I've just not heard a super good argument for why the shutdown increases them. So I think that these are all considerations that you want your elected officials to have, that you don't necessarily want everyone who is, you know, blocking out their weekends to knock on doors in the Pennsylvania district that has the next special election to be going through, right? Like, you don't need every single member of your party, and you don't want every single member of your party to be thinking in terms of you know, strategy in the long game, because then they're going to be second-guessing your decisions at every turn. You want a reliable source of motivation, and being able to maintain that while not always doing the things that the people who are fired up all the time want you to do is a tricky thing that parties have to deal with. Like, we've seen, you know, I think one of the real lessons that, that it's surprising to me Democrats haven't learned is that Republicans managed to stoke the Tea Party wave by promising the moon consistently, right? And then not always doing, you know, that that has consequences for a party that believes in open primaries for incumbents. You know, <laughs> um, that's, it's not, you see a lot of the people who were first elected in 2010, you know, since retiring from Congress, because they've realized that it actually isn't fun to be the person explaining why things didn't happen. And I think that Democrats are trying to have it both ways right now. They're, they really are leaning into the rhetoric of the resistance and the idea that there is something inherently illegitimate about this presidency that is not what you would expect from a party that is trying to maintain what remains of the system. And they maybe need to figure out, you know, what the consequences of that rhetoric are going to be in cases like this, where they want to retain the ability to plan three steps ahead. All right. All right. Um, I think that's a good note to end on here. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, As always, you should join our awesome Facebook group, where I think we'll be continuing to talk about this. Um, Thank you. It never shuts down. It never shuts down. It goes on all the time. It's an infinite game. The government shut. And all of you, we consider all of you essential. We would never (laughs) do any of our, our Weeds members unessential. 
Thank you to our very essential producer, Peter Leonard. Thanks, Dara, for coming on on a very busy day. Very short notice. On very short notice. (laughs) And we will see you guys again on Friday. 